0: Yeah. I'm going to switch my setup around so you yeah, don't see the go ahead. clip behind me, because I know this is not a video thing, but still, I don't want you to... It's no problem. I'm blinded over here. Okay.
1: Well, welcome to Preacher Lab. For preachers just like you and I, we are in the middle of Advent, um, and we're doing a special Preacher Lab this week, all about preaching on Christmas Eve. And I have the honor and the privilege of talking to the wonderful orator and pastor of Hyde Park United Methodist Church, McGray Vega. McGray, thanks for joining us on Preacher Lab. It's great
0: to be with you, Will. Thank you for asking me.
1: So I know we're going to do, this is our special one about Christmas Eve. So um, I'm guessing you're not going to be preaching on judges
0: or uh, anything like that. <laughs> No, as it turns out, I'll be preaching something related to Christmas on Christmas <gasps> Eve. <laughs> All right. So, where
1: are you where are you going? Uh, where are you headed? How are you going to craft this thing for Christmas Eve?
0: Well, for various reasons, we're in John's Nativity uh, for this uh, this Christmas Eve. I know typically we preach from Luke um, or sometimes from Matthew. But this year, John's prologue uh, really seemed to be the right match for us. Um, so John won the prologue, in the beginning was the word, um, and to, to talk through what that means. Uh, so that's where we will be this this Christmas Eve.
1: So what what made you go with John versus the typical Matthew, Luke pieces?
0: Well one practical reason is that we are following Abingdon Press's latest curriculum called All the Good and it, they they have Advent 4 the fourth Sunday of Advent centering on the shepherds on the iconic story from from Luke 2 and so that that by process of elimination for me meant that we didn't want to do Luke 2 again just a few days later and there's something about John's opening that that always feels right to me on Christmas Eve. It's a high holy day. It's an inspiring, light-filled occasion when we get together and and light candles and sing Christmas carols. And there's something majestic and sweeping, kind of like an opening overture to uh, a composition or a movie. That is elicited when you hear John John's words, and so that always feels right to me uh, to 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 talk about John one uh, on on Christmas Eve. Is that is that typical
1: for you? Is or is that just you're following and saying, "Well, can't do Luke, so I have to do John"?
0: <laughs> yeah, typically it's either Luke or John, um, so it's. It's uh, usually one or the other, and I think I did, I think I did Luke two last year, but that's part of the challenge, isn't it? The same thing goes for Easter, I suppose. That uh, it's a very familiar story. These are very familiar texts, whether you go with Luke or John, and so part of the challenge of a of a well understood, familiar kind of passage is that people come in with a set of expectations, or at least prior interpretations of the story. But it's also helpful to leverage that to your advantage. Um, It's one of those rare occasions when you can assume that the congregation has at least basic familiarity with the texts. Even people who are unchurched and come in uh, just for those uh, few Sundays or those few services, they know the story. So, um, it's at that point when I'm preaching on Christmas Eve, I don't feel like I need to go too much into a reminder of what happened and what it is that we're celebrating and really jump more right into the connections uh, between the ancient story and um, our needs for today.
1: Yeah, so how how do you, for Christmas Eve or Easter, these, these typical stories, what are the ways that you do that? Because it'd be really easy to kind of lull someone to sleep of, this is what we've heard. Yes. Yeah.
0: Well, I know that one of the safeguards that I have to keep in mind, that I have to avoid, is to not delve too much into the mechanics of the incarnation uh, when it comes to Christmas Eve, or the mechanics of the resurrection when it comes to Easter, Um, I've heard good advice over the years from that, where where they say that people aren't interested in high-level, first-order theologizing about how the Incarnation happened. As central as it is to the Christian faith that we believe that Jesus was fully human and fully divine, which is at the heart of the Incarnation, Um, on Christmas Eve, anyway, particularly in a sermon— they don't need any dense intellectual theologizing about how that happened or what that means. Um, and so that's that's one sort of guardrail that I have in place when I'm thinking through the story. As As interesting as I think that is to think about and to try to make relevant connections to that kind of theological inquiry, I don't think that's appropriate for Christmas Eve. But at the same time, this is not to say that we are to dumb down the story and simply make it uh, an echo of a, of, a, of a children's Christmas pageant. Um, because there is something very provocative about these texts, very compelling, and in some cases unsettling. Um, and so my approach to every sermon that I write is to look for the surprise, to look for the aha, um, For the twist, I like to think of it. The the point in the sermon where it zigs, where you expect it to zag. Um, I've heard it called the hook. Uh, It's the thing that creates conflict in a sermon that engages interest, not only between the preacher and the hearers, but between the hearers and the text. And most importantly, between the hearers and the spirit. What is that hook? What is that twist? And once I can identify that, then i'm generally able to build the whole sermon around that hook and it's important to just have one hook you can't zig and zag too much in one sermon because i think we all know what that would feel like but we we i look for the one hook the one twist it's either in the story or in the interpretation of the story or in the human experience somewhere it could come from anything and then you build the whole sermon from that and and this year i was able to find something like that in in my um, reading of of John 1. So,
1: All right, so I don't know if you want to share what that hook or that zig or that zag is. Um, we haven't yeah. preached it yet, but...
0: Sure, I, I wrote it. Um, so for the hearers, uh, we're recording this together a few weeks before Christmas Eve, and I was able to finish the manuscript last week, and in fact, I'm recording it, filming it tonight for our online Christmas Eve service, and I'm, I'm happy to share... The hook, it's nothing profound. I don't want it to sound like this is earth-shattering stuff, but um, I thought a lot about the first few words of John 1 in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. And um, I thought about that in relation to why we gather on Christmas Eve at all. And we gather on Christmas Eve to remember the story of how it all began. In fact, I use that phrase often in the first half of my sermon. We are here to remember how it all began. And I talk about that in parallel to what happens when we gather for our own birthday celebrations. That when we gather for our birthdays, just like we're gathering for Jesus' birthday, when we gather for our birthdays, we like to think about how our lives began. Love to hear the stories about what was happening when we we were born. The twist then is to remember that Christmas Eve is not only a story about how it all began, but a reminder of how it's a story that is just beginning in us. Um, And part of fleshing out that hook is the reminder that in the nativity of Jesus, the most profound moments that happen in the Christmas story are when individual people encounter Jesus and see their lives transformed that um, The main point of the sermon is that it's not just a reminder of how it all began it's a reminder of the new story that God wants to begin in us, just like the shepherds had a new story that began in them, just like Mary had a new story that began in her, just like joseph. Um, and so that's that's the twist. That's that's the hook where I'm going. Gosh, that's.
1: I'd say that's profound because I think that's. I've never heard a Christmas Eve service sermon like that. I've I've never heard one. I've never preached one myself. Um, and how how interesting in the beginning, um, and it takes, that takes me all the way back to Genesis one too. Exactly. Um, and that's just. Yeah, and oh, yeah. I love that image of birthday. I've, I've never thought about like, oh, yeah, well, I just go to my birthday and we celebrate or whatnot. But I never, re- the reason why we celebrate a birthday is to remember, that's just Gosh, you got me. I, I want to hear the rest of the sermon now. Yeah.
0: And in fact, in the first half of my sermon, before I get to the twist, I tell a story from the day I was born, which I just love to hear from my parents because it's just hysterical. And I'll leave it at that in case you want to you wanna watch the Christmas Eve sermon. <laughs> yeah. So
1: Yeah, we're all going to have to watch it on uh, Christmas Eve. <laughs> That's fantastic. All right. So 30,000 foot view here. Um how do you how do you go about writing these things or thinking about these hooks? So what is that process? Because you're you're two and a half weeks ahead of when you're going to preach this live and a week ahead, two weeks ahead for recording it.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. And in fact, on a weekly basis, uh, because of the weekly rhythm with my worship team here, I have to have every Sunday sermon written by Wednesday at noon so that I have a few hours to let it breathe before I edit it again Wednesday night, because Thursday morning we video record it, um, and then I preach it live on Sunday morning. So uh, it does require a kind of regular routine, which when people ask me you know, if there's any secret to doing this every week, my first response is find a routine that works for you and the team that you work with and stick to it religiously. Be fiercely protective of your time. And so, um, yeah, it is a stretch. So it was certainly a stretch for me last week to, to to write a sermon almost three weeks in advance. But that's when the other kinds of routines and rhythms kick in—not just being fiercely protective of your time, um, but but uh, being fiercely protective of the rhythms of interpretation um, and knowing. Uh, where to look and what to look for in the text and in other kinds of resources. Um, I usually get my my juices flowing, uh, first of all, by looking at, at textweek.org or textweek.com. That's very familiar to all of your hearers, I'm sure. And it's just an amazing compendium of commentaries, uh, articles about particular texts. And so... You have to be careful with things like that because you don't want to just plagiarize. And so I have to be very careful that if I find something that's worded really well, that I just leave it right away and hmm. try not to think about that. But what I'm looking for, again, what I'm spelunking for is the hook. It's the little nugget, the, uh, the little twist. And I'll often find that um, sometimes there on that website or in um, certainly looking at the text itself. Oftentimes there'll be a word in the text. This is actually what happens more often than not. There'll be a word or a phrase that I've never quite noticed before in the scripture hmm. where I'll want to do some digging about what that word means. Um, and in fact, my team was just looking at the Easter text for, for next spring. and and there's a word in, in the Easter narrative where Peter was 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 wondering about what happened and so uh, i'm going to base the whole easter sermon on that word wonder here in john's gospel for christmas eve i'm going to end the sermon um thinking about the way the prologue ends with uh, and and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have beheld his glory the glory of the father's only son full of grace and truth I've never preached a Christmas Eve sermon that talks about what grace and truth means in relation to the Christmas story. And so I'm ending with just two or three paragraphs of what those two words mean in relation to Jesus and how the story that Jesus is writing in us, that's just beginning has a chapter on grace in our story and a chapter on truth. And so that's, that's where it begins for me in terms of digging around for Um, for inspiration about what to say. Um. So you have to
1: be, you have to be very disciplined because you're, you're already done with your Christmas Eve sermon and you preached, you wrote it last week and that's the first week in December or even Thanksgiving. And you're already talking about Easter. That's, so do you have like a, a schedule that you kind of follow regularly? Do you have like time blocked out of I'm working on Christmas Eve a month beforehand
0: a lot of that frankly is driven by my worship team. Um, we have musicians, music directors on there. we have the the video production team and whereas we preachers can get away with uh, writing a sermon 48 to 72 hours in advance of a Sunday, the people that we work with in churches like ours need weeks and often months to know where the sermon is going if they're going to um, be helpful in creating a service that that connects with it. And so, especially for Christmas and Easter, we do that work months in advance. Uh, So, we've known that we're doing John 1 back in August, basically. And uh, we know that we're going to be doing um, Luke's Gospel in Easter. We just decided that last week as well. So, those are I mean that's that's kind of unusual in terms of going this level of depth for a Sunday that far ahead. But at the same time, uh, we just finalized our worship series plans from um, from January through July, um just two weeks ago. so we we know the scriptures, the Sundays, the series that are happening that far in advance. and it it's often a push. It's, you know, it's, it's hard to be thinking that far ahead, but that's one way that we can function as a team together. And it's helpful for me to stay ahead of it,
1: so. Yeah, so when you come up with these ideas, these series, um, is it something that you come up with? Is it a team effort? Do you mm. kind of have a feedback loop? What does that look like?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, back before COVID, we had a series of different teams working with, laity and staff people to develop all these things. COVID kind of disrupted it. So we're going to ease back into that old system. But for now, it still is a very, very collaborative process. It begins with uh, our listening to the times and listening to the congregation. I engage the other clergy and our lay leaders to say what kinds of felt needs are out there for our congregation in the upcoming year. And we'll come up with just some general themes, words, ideas. And then from there, I'll take those ideas and flesh it out in series form and scripture form. And so just a quick overview, Uh, in January, we're doing a a series called Joy based on Philippians. In February, we're doing a series on resilience because we think resilience is really important for people today. And we're going to base that on the story of Nehemiah. Uh, Lent, we're going to be using uh, some curriculum out of sanctifiedart.org called Full to the Brim. We're going to call it Overflowing. Post-Easter, for six weeks, we're going to be doing a series on the 12 steps. We have a strong recovery community here in the church, and a lot of the leaders here of recovery have advocated for a series that talks about the 12 steps in spiritual discipleship terms. So I'm excited about that. That's a great resurrection easter kind of theme oh, for yeah. the series and then this summer we're going to be doing uh, something we did three years ago which is a worship series on popular movies that have just come out so we'll be doing uh, various films uh, that's a good summertime kind of time to do that so that's where we're going between now and and july oh, that is it's
1: it's so interesting i mean a lot of the work that people, that people see when we're preaching, you see that one particular sermon. But when you go behind the scenes, you see all of the work that happened beforehand. I right. mean, six months of work of, is what you're doing, honestly. Right. And, that, and, and you just see that kind of, you know, the root of that iceberg is way underneath the water. Um, but the beauty of the top of the iceberg is only able to be that beautiful because how deep that the iceberg actually goes.
0: Right, right, right. it It does take a lot of work. And um, I'm glad people experience it and feel like it comes across as effortless because it 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 isn't. Um, but uh, but when it when it all comes together, it's just an amazing thing to watch,
1: yeah, so how do you how how do you work with the music and the structure of worship in connection mm-hmm. to the sermon? Um because a lot of people I've talked with on the podcast, really feel the the combination of the two have to be interlinked so what does that look like
0: for you so we have two primary styles of worship here like many churches we have a contemporary service and a traditional service and uh, and we have two amazing music directors who can take the essence of our spiritual theme for the sunday and pick music that fits not only the theme content wise But they also do a good job paying attention to energy flow in the service. Um, They recognize that uh, depending on where I'm starting or ending a sermon, it will require a particular kind of musical energy or prayerful energy going into that sermon or coming out of it. And we often think a lot in those terms when we're doing our sort of final, final plans of the service. Um, what, what kind of music do we need to start with that will get people invigorated or in a prayerful place? What's happening at the end of my sermon and what will be the natural energy flow coming out of that? Um, I'm not a musician. And so I'm grateful that people on this team who speak that language, um, don't require a lot of translation on my part. I mean, I I can give them what I've given them in the spiritual direction document that I've written and they'll know what to do with it. And um, and oftentimes there's some collaboration on, on particular levels. Like if there's a, uh, if they'll tell me that before the sermon or after the sermon, there's a particular song that they're gonna do. I will often um, ask for the lyrics to that song um, before that Wednesday morning, because I love to hear those lyrics as a, another layer of interpretive filter uh, when I'm looking at the text, so it really does go both ways. I don't want it to look to sound like the sermon is the foundation and everything else is built around it. Very, very often, I will take the work of my my worship team and be inspired by it, and that will help me find that hook in the scripture uh, yeah. that that has happened many, many times.
1: Oh, that's really, that's, that's a very different way of looking at it, because um, oftentimes you would pick the text and everything kind of centers around the sermon, but it's more like it's a it's a dance, so there's a leader and a take from both sides, so, right. songs, call to
0: worship, all of those different pieces. Right. Uh, a good example is last Christmas Eve, uh, that was all online, we weren't able to meet in person. And the worship team got together weeks in advance, and they said, well, these are the, these are the musical pieces we're thinking of. They, a lot of the songs they said contrast light and dark. Our video production team was thinking about giving a visual treatment to the whole service that literally contrasted light and dark uh, from the beginning to the end of the service. And when I heard that, I was able to see the text in a completely different way. And in fact, last year... I I shelved the entire Christmas Eve manuscript that I had written the first week of December and rewrote the whole thing based on what the team was giving me with their musical selections. And was it because I was able to see something in that text that I'd never seen before, the contrast between light and darkness. So I'm very grateful for this whole collaborative kind of process. That's, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. All right.
1: So going a little deeper um, into to your process and your writing, um, what is that the week of when you're about to mm-hmm. when you're preaching? Um, do you write everything out? Do you memorize it? Um, what does that process look like? And then then the actual performative piece of it.
0: Well, the first thing I do is take a breath and say a prayer, uh, like <laughs> many of us presumably do. And um, really, for the last few months, ever since I discovered this story, this really has helped me. Um, You know, it's a wrestling match every week. It is to to write this sermon is a strain. It's a struggle. I, I liken it to Jacob wrestling with the angel. And at the end of the day, it is the greatest relief and the greatest satisfaction that I have during the week to know that God did it again, you know, and that I didn't. I didn't have what it took uh, to write this thing. And so God has come through again. So the story that I heard uh, several months ago is about um, Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, the great composer, would always finish every one of his compositions, his musical masterpieces by writing at the bottom of the last page of music, the letters SDG, Soli Deo Gloria to God be the glory. And I'd like to imagine, you know, I'm certainly not at the level of Bach, but I like to imagine that when Bach finished every composition, he just, it was like putting a last period at the end of a sermon manuscript, this great relief, this great celebration, this great joy. And I always, uh, I always appreciate that feeling. What I didn't know is that whenever Bach was writing a composition And he would begin a new page of blank musical staff paper. The first thing he would write at the top left-hand corner of that blank page is J.J. Yesu Yuvo, which means Jesus help me. Um, Because he recognized that in order to get to SDG, he couldn't do it himself. And he would need only the, the work of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit. So... You ask me, my process, I mean, literally, the first thing I do when I stare at my Microsoft Word document is I click header and footer, and I type JJ into the header so that it shows up at the top of every blank page of my manuscript. Now, I eventually, when I type SDG at the end, I'll erase JJ, and when I send it off to the team, I mean, they don't see this, but it's a, it's a visual reminder to me that I can't do this. And to just claim the hope that when the wrestling with the angel is over, there will be great relief and and it is always without fail, the most the most joyful relief of every given week. I mean, once I type that final period by Wednesday at noon, my outlook. On on the work just brightens. It's that kind of vivid thing. So so there are other there are other uh, typical things that I follow. I go out to breakfast with my computer at you know seven or seven thirty in the morning on Wednesdays. I will write until uh, I feel like I found that hook. Then I'll go home, and and I will tell you what I learned this from Jim Harnish. Sometimes. With all of the stuff that I've crammed in my head, usually by Wednesday morning at 9 or 9.30, the best thing I can do is go into my room and just close my eyes and take advantage of what science knows as the strength of the REM sleep cycle (laughs) to stop using my prefrontal cortex for a little while, which is where I've been cramming all this stuff, and let my amygdala and all the subconscious stuff try to work on all that front stuff and sometimes it's literally just a 15 minute nap i rarely go longer than that that i will wake up and i will have that i'll have that hook in a very clear way i'm a little sheepish to admit that i take naps when i'm sermon writing but over time i have discovered sometimes that's what i need and that really works yeah. and then i usually Usually I've found my flow at that point. My body is rested. My mind is more alert. I'll sit in my comfortable chair. It's a recliner that I use at a particular angle. I will ask Siri to play a particular kind of music that sets whatever kind of mood that I'm looking for in the sermon manuscript itself. And sometime between 10 and 12 on Wednesday morning that that I get to SDG. Um, so that's... That's about as specific as it gets for me. It's nothing magical, um, but it's just a routine that uh, it's a routine conversation I have with God every Wednesday morning.
1: Yeah. So, oh, I love it. But you, you're embodying all of that. It's not like it's here and you're typing it and it's done, but you're embodying the whole thing of going to take a nap, of sitting in your chair the exact way putting on the music to fill the room that would match the sermon. I I mean, that it's those specifics, I think, and those particulars that you live into that it sounds like just creates this beautiful masterpiece of your own composition.
0: Um, It's routine. It's it's rhythm. Um, Like I said, be fiercely protective of your time. Be fiercely protective of your routine. And I also like to tell people, be fiercely protective of your voice. And by that, I mean not just the physical instrument in your throat, although you do have to take care of your body and your voice. When I say take care of your voice, I mean um, be fiercely protective of how you approach the scriptures, of how you've developed an approach to the text, what you expect out of a sermon, uh, what constitutes a successful sermon to you. There's a lot of temptations nowadays Um, with so many different kinds of preaching and different kinds of worship services and different kinds of churches um, where people will come hoping for a different kind of preaching from, from me and from you. And this is not to say we don't grow. This is not to say we don't uh, create, be creative and be innovative, but there comes a point where once you have discovered uh, your expectation of what a sermon should be, you have to be fiercely protective of that, um, and and I would say that's one thing that has kept me through the pandemic, is that um, that I have an expectation of what this sermon is supposed to accomplish, and 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 how I'm supposed to discover truths in the text. That if I waver on that, I will be. I'll be spending a lot of energy, but not making any movement. Um, So I I think that's, that's been very helpful for me to remember.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So, so what, what do you think when you're preaching, what is your, your niche, your gift, the thing that, that you feel is the gift that God has given you
0: to preach? Wow. Wow. Uh, Well, I'm honored by that question, and to begin to even think about that question sort of requires me to presume kind of a a level of authority and expertise in myself that I would ascribe to lots of other preachers. I mean, that's a question I would love to ask any of a number of other preachers that I've known and and admired. So, since you're asking that of me, I will... (laughs) I'll do my best to answer that genuinely. I like to think that, um, my approach to the text, the thing that I love to do as a preacher is to find something deep and insightful in the text that connects at a deep level in the, in the ears of the hearer. Um, it's it's not to find anything deep and profound simply for the intellectual sake, but it's to find the one thing that maybe someone has never discovered before in that text or in the Christian faith that connects at the deepest part of who they are. And they can take that with them. Um, I, don't, um, I don't like to preach just superficial kinds of sermons. Um, And this is especially challenging for Christmas and Easter sermons that are so familiar. But the the challenge is you don't want to go so deep that it sounds just intellectual and cerebral and it just goes over people's heads just to make you sound smart. So that's always the wonderful challenge, to help people find the aha and then to connect that aha to their own lives and see that it really does make a difference. I I just love those kinds of moments. In the scripture
1: yeah and I see I see you doing that when you're doing the writing of it I mean you said you you put all this prefrontal cortex stuff uh mm-hmm. commentaries Greek words whatever and then you I mean the nap portion I think that's just that's profound for me mm-hmm. of that that moves the head and then it allows the the body to work and it allows it to move it to the hearts mm-hmm. and I'm guessing when you wake up you're like sometimes, that's it. Uh, that's that's the piece, or that, or there's one story that you're like, I haven't thought about that story in 15 years, right? But right. you're you're moving from head to heart when you're writing it, and then I, I hear you saying your goal and the thing that you love to do is help other people move it from
0: head to heart, right? Right, and that's why I only look for one hook and not two or three, because uh, if you find that one little nugget. And, you, and you, you discover it, you polish it, um, then it doesn't become this cerebral kind of intellectual exercise. It becomes something that people can hold and carry with them and, um, and have it impact them. So, so, again, for Christmas Eve, the line, it's not just the story of how it all began. It's the story that is just beginning in you, is, is the hook that um, I hope people take with them. That is true. Most importantly, that is true to the heart of John's prologue. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. Is, that is
1: that is worth its weight in gold. There, that's beautiful. Yeah. Good, good. Well, I'm, we're ending close to our time. I think this is a good space to end. Um, but is, are there any final thoughts that you'd have for preachers who are listening, um, working on a Christmas Eve sermon? Oh.
0: Um. Uh, this is hard work. Um, it's hard just in and of itself to do what we do every week. It's made even harder by all of the other responsibilities that we juggle. But even when it's at its hardest, I guess the encouragement that I try to carry all the time is it is still one of the greatest privileges that any, that any people have in this world it's It's a blessed burden to do what we do to to be allowed into the most intimate kinds of spiritual conversations that people have when they're hurting the most. Um, and the fact that people show up or they turn on the computer and they come with an expectation that something is going to speak to them, that is an amazing privilege and um and may that be an encouragement to all of us.
1: Oh, yeah. It is such a gift what we get to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, McGray, uh, I've got one more quick question and sure. then we'll, we'll sign off together. But um, when you think about the past year, what has been one book that has made an impact on you, whether it be preaching wise, personal wise, professional wise, uh, a fun book? Uh, what, what's that one book that comes to mind? Oh wow! Okay, you're limited to one. Or just, I just one. If you want to do two, you can have an honorable mention.
0: Okay, this is gonna sound so nerdy, and I don't mean it that way, but sometimes you got to read stuff outside your expertise and outside your professional career, just to just to get your mind thinking in a different way. So here's the book. It's called Fundamentals: Ten Keys to Reality. It's about Theoretical physics and theoretical (laughs) astrophysics. And um, it's written by a guy, a profound astrophysicist who talks about 10 keys to reality, time, space, um, uh, atoms, um, gravity, just things that we take for granted and writes it in such an accessible way to all of us, non-scientific types to help us gain a deep appreciation for the way the world works, the way our minds work, the way our bodies work, um, and for me, I, I, I read that and just got a deeper sense of wonder about creation. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't have, with the exception of maybe a paragraph or two, has nothing to do with religion or spirituality. But in but in a way, it 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 is a spiritual kind of journey to think through all this. So. Uh, I'm sur- I'm I'm as surprised as you that I mentioned that book, frankly. But um yeah, I really I really loved that book, Fundamentals, Ten Keys to Reality.
1: Fundamentals, 10 Keys to Reality. <laughs> that is that is fantastic. That's you know, this that's one of the questions that I've asked preachers and I like, I like you never know what to expect. Um yeah. I had I had Dave Killingsworth tell me his favorite was Dr. Seuss. There so, you go. Uh, we have everything that ranges from Dr. Seuss to fundamentals and astrophysics.
0: Yes, there you go. <laughs> you know what, though? Now that he's mentioned that, uh, I would put Dr. Seuss up there as well.
1: Right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, great, thank you. Thank you for sharing the time. Thank you, Will. Your gift. And this is just this has been a lot of fun and just
0: such such a good learning experience. Well, I appreciate you and your ministry and what you're doing here. And may, may you continue to be a blessing Uh, to your hearers. Thanks very much.